0: you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you uh, in your chair or in your uh, pew, you'll find our passage on page 942, 942. Uh, I am excited to announce this morning that we are going to begin a new series, a new sermon series in Romans chapter 6 through 8, and this series will actually span for the next six months. Uh, So from uh, January through to June, uh, we will be walking through Romans chapter 6 through 8. As many of you know, we have been kind of in an extended sermon series through our mission statement. And so uh, I know we often have new people here at the church. If you're not aware yet, our mission statement is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel And what we've been doing is in a three-year time period, we are looking at different elements of our mission statement in six-month increments. So you can see the chart there. Uh, We, in 2021, focused on the glory of God and then the gospel. Uh, Last year, we focused on making disciples and then enjoying the gospel. And this year, in 2023, we'll focus on living the gospel and then proclaiming the gospel. And so for the next six months, we're going to look at this idea of living the gospel, glorifying God by living the gospel. And, um, and we'll be doing so in Romans chapter 6 through 8. Now, when we talk about living the gospel, what we're talking about is what it means to follow Jesus in faith and obedience. What it means once we have received God's grace and mercy and forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ to then live for Jesus and to follow Jesus. And this really is the subject of Romans chapter 6 through 8. Another way we could say it is that the focus of Romans chapter 6 through 8 is sanctification. Now that's a big word. What does it mean? Sanctification means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. And as Christians, God has called us to be sanctified. He's called us to be set apart, to be made holy unto Him. We are to be set apart from sin and the sinful ways of the world, and we are to be given to God to walk in holiness before Him. Another way we could say this is that in sanctification, God is calling us to grow spiritually in Christ and to become more like Jesus, who Himself is holy. So as we look at Romans chapter 6, Paul begins in Romans chapter 6 by addressing a crucial matter regarding our spiritual growth. And here's here's the issue that Paul is addressing. If we are not saved by our good works, which Paul has actually been arguing up to this point in Romans, if we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved by by trusting in Christ, and receiving God's grace through faith in Jesus, then do we really need to concern ourselves with holiness? Now that, broadly speaking, is the subject of Romans chapter 6 through 8. This morning we're just going to focus on the first four verses of Romans chapter 6. And Paul addresses this matter by asking two questions... And then giving two answers, an answer to each of those questions. So, let me read our passage for us, and then we'll begin to consider the passage together. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and as we turn to the Scriptures now, we pause to ask for Your help and Your grace. We pray that You would illumine our minds by Your Spirit, and Father, we pray that by the power of Your Word, You would change and transform our hearts and lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, the way that I've broken up our passage this morning is two questions and then two answers. And the first question we see here in our text is, does abounding grace result in abounding sin? So this is our outline. First question, does abounding grace result in abounding sin? Now, this was actually one of the accusations that Paul's opponents made against him and against his gospel. You see, up until this point, Paul's been making the argument that we are all sinners and we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In particular, in Romans chapters 4 and 5, Paul declares the free grace of God through faith in Jesus. He declares that we are not saved by our good deeds, we are not saved by our best efforts, but rather by trusting in Jesus, by believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to suffer the penalty for our sin in our place so that we trust Him as our Savior and we receive God's grace and forgiveness through Christ. And Paul concludes this discussion in chapter 5, verse 20 with these words. So if you just look a little bit up the page, you'll see in chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Here it is. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Charles Spurgeon states it this way. Quote, You cannot sin so much as God can forgive. If it comes to a pitched battle between sin and grace, you shall not be so bad as God is good. End of quote. That is the glorious good news of the gospel. But it does raise this question. Where grace abounds, does sin abound? Does abounding grace then result necessarily in abounding sin? And there are many today who ask the same question. If one's not a Christian, they might hear the gospel of God's free grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And they might say, that doesn't sound right. You mean to tell me that you can trust in Jesus and all your sins will be forgiven? Does that mean then that you can live however you want to live? but then say, I'm forgiven, and spend eternity with God? Is that really the gospel? Is that really the message of the Bible? If someone's a believer, or at least least professes to be a Christian, they might respond this way. Well, that's wonderful. Then that means I can just sin freely. It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. They might even arrogantly profess, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And that, in many ways, is not a bad statement. In fact, it's true in many ways. Christians definitely are not perfect. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. But is that simply an excuse for bad behavior for some Christians? Or a Christian might take the approach when faced with temptation. Okay, so I know I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm faced with this particular temptation. And one might be inclined to take this approach. Lord, I know this is wrong. What's before me. But I really want to do it. And I know you're a gracious God. So I'm going to ask for your forgiveness before I do this. Then I'm going to do it, and I thank you that you're going to forgive me. Have you ever been tempted to do that? (laughs) Is that how the good news of the gospel is to function in a Christian's life? So here's the question. Does abounding grace result in abounding sin? The first answer, impossible. Look there in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or your translation might read, May it never be. The way I've expressed it here is impossible. It is impossible for God's abounding grace to result in abounding sin. Now... We're going to press into this deeper, but I just want to make this point before we do. Notice how Paul does not answer the question. So someone comes to Paul, and this is, this is the accusation that, that's being made against the Apostle Paul. You're preaching a gospel of free grace, and that's just going to lead to sin. And in fact, this is bringing a tremendous amount of persecution in the Apostle Paul's life. Because the Jews are saying, you are neglecting the law. And your gospel is going to lead to more and more sin. And so they're running him out of cities and stoning him and throwing him in prison. And the Apostle Paul does not respond to that accusation by saying, Oh, no, you misunderstood. You see, you thought I was preaching a gospel of free, abounding grace. That's not what I was saying. You misunderstood. Actually, the gospel I preach says that yes, God will show you some grace, but you got to do your part too. You need to work, you need to put forth your best effort, you need to bring some of your good deeds to the table, and then you mix your good deeds with some of God's grace, and in the end, hopefully, you'll make it into heaven. Now, that is the gospel that most people, I dare say, believe today. And Paul would say, it's a false gospel. It is no gospel. So that's not Paul's answer. Rather, Paul's answer is not to diminish or minimize grace, but rather to expound upon it further. To explain it more fully and deeply. Paul's answer to this question is not to negate grace. Paul's answer, rather, is to press the Roman Christians into a deeper knowledge and experience of the grace of God. And what we will see in the coming weeks, and we'll see some of this this morning in particular, is that Paul's answer is to the Roman Christians, you don't understand the extent of God's grace. Because God's grace not only atones for the guilt of your sin, God's grace breaks the power of sin in your life. Therefore, if you are a recipient of God's grace, it is unthinkable, it is impossible that God's abounding grace in your life could result in abounding sin in your life. Now, of course, one of the reasons why we know this is true is because the whole purpose that God, for which God sent His Son into the world was not to relinquish us to the mastery of sin, to the reign of sin, but rather to deliver us from sin. To deliver us from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. So in one sense, the question itself would seem to reveal that one does not understand the gospel. The question itself reveals a deep misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. So at this point, I do want to say especially, before we move on, I do want to say especially a word to the young people who are here with us this morning. Our church has been blessed by the Lord with many young people, babies and children and youth. And for many of you who are young, who are here this morning, you are here in large part because your parents bring you to church. And praise God for that. That is wonderful. Praise God. It may not always feel wonderful to you when they're making you get up on Sunday morning and get ready and come to church. But praise God for Christian parents who bring their children to church. But it's vital that you understand that a knowledge of the Christian gospel is not enough to save you. So if you have parents that have been bringing you to church for some time, there is a good chance that you understand the content or the basic facts and truths of the gospel. You understand that there's a God who has created us. You understand that we are sinners and we have rebelled against Him. You understand that God, in His great mercy and grace in His Son Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised from the dead for our salvation. You even understand that you must believe and trust in Jesus in order to be saved. But it is also true that you can know all of those things and not be a Christian it is so important for us to understand that the gospel is not simply knowledge. The gospel itself contains power. The gospel is life. And so it is not just enough to know those things. We must turn from our sins. We must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you trust in Him and you yield your life to Him, He will change you and transform you by His Spirit. So that you will walk in a new and different way. So that you'll walk by faith in Him and obedience to Him. And this is evidence of your faith in Him. You will not be perfect. But by the grace of God you will be changed. It is impossible for one to truly trust in Christ. To be united to Christ. And not be changed and transformed by that same Christ. So that's the first question, and that's the first answer. Does abounding grace result in abounding sin? Impossible. Now here's the second question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Look there at verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And here it is. How can we who died to sin still live in in it. Now, when Paul speaks of us dying to sin, Paul here is making a reference to our union with Christ, that we are united as Christians to Christ by faith. And Paul will further unpack this idea throughout Romans chapter 6. We're actually going to be talking about it more next week. But for now, let me just simply say this. Paul teaches us here in Romans chapter 6 That through faith in Jesus, we are united to Him. We are made one with Christ. And what this means in part, and this is significant, what this means in part is that the historical events of Christ's death and burial and resurrection become personal, transformative realities in our own lives. So here, Paul assumes... That all Christians have been united to Jesus in His death. So that there is a real sense, when Christ died, we died. When Christ died, we died. And that means that we died to sin. Which means all Christians in Christ have spiritually died to sin. And here's the deal. And this is one of the arguments that Paul's going to be making in Romans chapter 6. Dead people Don't keep on sinning. Now that doesn't mean that Christians never sin. Paul is not teaching perfectionism here and we're going to address that in the weeks to come. But it does mean that sin no longer has the final say in the believer's life. Its power over us has been broken so that, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, we can't continue on in sin, live in sin, especially as we think of in an intentional, unrepentant way. And so in some respects, the answer to this question, this second question, is implied. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. We can't. But how do we know we can't? And that's really where Paul goes in his answer. How do we know we can't continue in sin in the same way that we did before if we've been united to Christ? And this leads to the second an- This is the second answer, okay? So this outline, if you're following, taking notes, is a second answer. Paul says, the way we know is our baptism. The second answer is, remember your baptism. there in verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, there are several things we learn here in our text about baptism. I want to hit these pretty quickly, each one of these pretty quickly. The first thing we learn here about Christian baptism is that Paul is speaking here in these verses of water baptism, okay? Paul is speaking, and for some of you, you might think, well, why even say that? Well, I'll I'll try to explain that, but Paul is speaking here in Romans chapter 6 of water baptism. The reason why I say that is because some have suggested that in Romans chapter 6, Paul is speaking about spiritual baptism, baptism in the Spirit, but he's not really thinking about water baptism. And they make a distinction between the two. He's not thinking about actual physical baptism into water. But I would argue that in Paul's mind, the two are almost inseparable. In fact, a number of scholars have pointed out that unless explicitly stated otherwise, baptism in the New Testament always refers to water baptism. So, for example, John Stott writes, "...baptism means water baptism unless in the context it is stated to the contrary." Some commentators have suggested that Paul here is referring to baptism with the Spirit as uniting us with Christ, but it is safe to say that whenever the terms "baptism" and "being baptized" occur without mention of the element in which baptism takes place, the reference is to water baptism end of quote." In other words, there are a few situations in the New Testament where it might say like, "baptized into fire." Okay, so the element is actually explicitly stated into which the one is baptized, so that in that situation, it's not speaking of water baptism. But otherwise, in the predominant number of cases where baptism is used in the New Testament, it speaks of water baptism. And so Paul here is making an appeal to our physical water baptism. Second thing we see in our text. Baptism is assumed. This is the second thing we see regarding Baptism baptism is assumed. Look there in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Now, this is interesting because Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This is actually a church that Paul has never visited. And as Paul writes to this church, he assumes that That all of the believers there in Rome, in that church, have been baptized. That they have experienced water baptism. Do you not know that all of us, he's including himself, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus? And you see what Paul is saying here. He's, He's saying, surely you know. Paul's assumption is that every Christian in Rome has experienced baptism and understand something of its implications, of its significance. I would go as far as to say it this way. In Paul's mind, to be a Christian is to be baptized. That's how closely Paul links the two. Now, we need to be very clear here. I am not saying that baptism makes you a Christian. That's a false gospel. But if you're a Christian, then Paul assumes, of course, you've been baptized in order to publicly identify yourself with Christ and with his church. Now, where would Paul get such an idea? Well, of course, he got it from Jesus, right? Before Jesus ascends to the Father, the last words that he gives to his disciples is, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So in one sense we could say as we make disciples, the first act of obedience as a disciple is to follow Jesus in baptism. And this has important implications for Paul's teaching here. If Paul has physical water baptism in mind in Romans chapter 6, which I believe he does, then it's apparent from Paul's words that only born-again believers are to be baptized. Let me be more clear. If Paul has baptism, physical water baptism in mind, then it's apparent that those who have not yet placed their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus are not to be baptized. Look there at verses 3-4 through again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Now notice what Paul describes here. Being baptized into Christ Jesus, being baptized into His death, being buried with Him by baptism... These things are only true of believers. It's only believers that have been united to Christ in such a way that we have died with Him. That we've been buried with Him. Let me say it this way. Paul does not say, do you not know that some of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus may one day possibly be buried with Him in death? may one day possibly be united to Him in His death. Now the reason why I make this point is because our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are fellow Christians that we love in other denominations and churches, some of them baptize their children, their infants. And they tell us that this is the significance of the baptism. They baptize their infants in hope that one day their children might trust in Christ, in hope that their children one day might be united to Him by faith, in hope that one day their children might be united to Him in death to sin and in His glorious resurrection from the dead. But my friends understand, the New Testament never speaks of baptism in that way. In the New Testament, baptism is not a symbol of what one day might perhaps possibly take place. Rather, in the New Testament, baptism is a symbol of a union with Christ that has already occurred through faith in the believer's life and is now a present reality. We were baptized into His death. We were buried with Him by baptism into death. So, water baptism. Baptism is assumed. The third thing we see here regarding baptism is that baptism is by immersion. Baptism is by immersion. You see it there in the text. He says, you were baptized into His death, buried therefore with Him by baptism, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, in some Christian traditions, the mode of baptism is sprinkling. In other traditions like our own here at Crawford Avenue, the mode of baptism is dipping or immersing. Now, it's interesting because most often those who choose to sprinkle when they baptize believe it's a matter indifferent. That means it doesn't really matter. You could immerse, you could sprinkle. It doesn't really matter either way. But most of those who immerse believe that it's not a matter indifferent But there is good reason to believe that immersion was the mode of baptism practiced in the New Testament and therefore the proper mode of baptism for us to practice today. In fact, those who affirm immersion as the mode of baptism believe that there is something intentionally significant and meaningful in the act of immersion and therefore to forsake the practice of immersion is to forfeit something significant and precious in the act of baptism. Now, why would we say that baptism is by immersion? There's a couple of reasons here. One is because of the meaning of the word itself. The Greek word here is baptizo. It actually means to dip or to immerse. And one of the reasons why we have this confusion is because we transliterate the word here, baptizo, rather than translate it. So, in other words, in our Bibles... We provide the English sound of the Greek word, baptizo, what's the English sound of that? Baptize. Rather than translating the Greek word to dip or to immerse. And then, I point this out here because in Romans chapter 6, there seems to be further evidence here that immersion is the proper mode of baptism because in, Paul, in Romans chapter 6, Paul reveals the symbolic significance of this act of immersion. I think that's what's happening here in Romans chapter 6. In fact, we declare this reality every time we have a baptism here at Crawford Avenue as i lower the one who is being baptized into the waters i declare the words of the apostle paul here buried with him in baptism and as i raise that individual out of the water i declare the words of the apostle paul here raised to walk in newness of life and it seems that's what paul is getting at here that the symbol Of immersion is death with Christ buried in the waters of baptism. Life with Christ being raised up out of those waters which represent death. In this way, immersion beautifully symbolizes our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. And I would simply say that in the practice of baptism, nothing compares with the act of immersion In symbolically capturing the depth of the believer's union with Christ and the radical transformation that takes place in a believer's life through faith in Jesus. Understand that immersion is a symbol of resurrection, it is a symbol of death leading to life. And so, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6 is he's raising this question. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is saying here, remember your baptism. You were immersed into Jesus. You were immersed into His death. You died to the old person that you were. And now you are alive in Jesus. Remember your baptism. You are a different person in Christ. The fourth thing that we see here regarding baptism is that baptism represents a new identity it represents a new identity. Look there in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now, I've been reading a book on sanctification by Sinclair Ferguson in this, preparing for this sermon series entitled Devoted to God. And in one uh, chapter in that book, he actually refers to baptism as a naming ceremony a naming ceremony. And we see something of that here where Paul is talking about being baptized into Christ Jesus. There's something of that here, but we explicitly see it very clearly in Jesus' instructions to His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, where He says that disciples are to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For many of us, perhaps most of us, when our parents named us, they chose a name because, in part, the meaning of that name, the significance of that name, what that name represented. For example, my parents gave me the name James Gilbert Daniel Jr. Bert comes from Gilbert. So I was named, I'm a junior, I was named after my father. My father was given those names by, as a result of different individuals within our family, different men in our family. He was given those names, and then those names were passed down to me. For our children, our first son, Noah Spurgeon Daniel, named after a biblical character, a spiritual kind of hero in the faith, and then given our family name. Isaiah, Newton, Daniel, same thing, biblical character, a spiritual hero, John Newton, and then our family name. Tatum, Abigail, Daniel. Tatum is my wife's maiden name, Abigail, a biblical name, Daniel, our family name. You see, often the name or names given to us at our birth tell us something about where we come from. They tell us something about who we are. They tell us something perhaps of what our parents hope we will become or aspire to be. And if that is true with the family names that we are given at birth, how much more so in our baptism? Our baptism in that sense is a naming ceremony. We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are baptized into the name of the Trinity. And our new name tells us something about the family into which we have been born or born again. It tells us something about who we are now, who we represent How we should now live and walk. It says something profoundly about who we are. In this sense, baptism is a declaration of our new identity in Christ. And Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome here, are saying to those Christians, Do you know your new name? Do you know your new identity? In your baptism, you've been given a new name, a new identity. How could you go back to your old life? How could you go back to who you used to be? You've been baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is water baptism here, I believe. It is assumed. It's by immersion. It represents a new identity. And then the final thing regarding baptism, and this is where we'll close is that baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. It's a symbol of our union with Christ. Look there again in verses 3-4. to four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now next week, when we look at verses 5 through 10, we are going to delve more deeply into this idea of union with Christ. and But this week, we're giving special attention to the symbol of our union with Christ, namely baptism. And, and I'll have to say that most often, we emphasize, rightfully so, union with Christ. That's the essence, right? That's the That's at the heart of what we're really talking about here union with Christ through faith, and that rightly should be emphasized primarily. But it is appropriate at times to stress the symbol, lest the symbol be forgotten or deemed unnecessary or unimportant. And what Paul is saying here to the Christians in Rome is do you not know, do you not understand what your baptism symbolized? It symbolized your union with Christ in His death and resurrection. And Paul wants them to understand, and maybe sometimes we think about our baptism this way, Paul wants them to understand that this symbol, this image of your salvation and redemption was not just for those who were gathered at your baptism... It was not just for their sake, for them to see a picture or a symbol of the gospel. It was for your sake. It was for your spiritual good and growth. You know, when two people get married, I think, I've used this illustration before, and I think it's so helpful in terms of understanding baptism. When two people get married, they exchange wedding rings. And the wedding ring is a symbol of, Of their marriage. That's how baptism functions in our lives as Christians. Now we can learn a few things from this. One, the symbol in and of itself, that is the wedding wing itself, doesn't make you married. So I have a wedding ring. You can buy a ring like this and you can put it on, but that doesn't mean you're married, right? When I was in high school, I'm not necessarily encouraging this practice, but it just happened. When I was in high school, there was uh, the senior guys. They would get you know senior rings. I don't know if I guess I'm revealing my age. I don't know if people still do this, but they would get senior rings. And if they liked a girl or were going out with a girl or whatever it was, they would give them their senior ring, right? And they the girl would wear the senior ring. That didn't mean they were married, right? So a ring doesn't make you married. Rather, what happens is two people come together in a wedding ceremony and they commit themselves to one another. They covenant with one another to be in a loving, permanent relationship with one another and they make that covenant before God and before other people and that's what makes them married. And the ring is just a, simple, a symbol of that reality, that covenant. So what, what can we learn from that? Listen, my friends, baptism will not save you. You can can be baptized and not be a Christian, just like a person could buy a ring and put on a ring, but that doesn't mean they're married. Something far more profound and deep must take place. You must trust in the Lord Jesus. In other words, you must believe in Him, trust in Him in such a way that you enter into a loving, permanent, covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's what union with Christ is. Having said that, going back to the wedding ring, if two people are married and one of them doesn't want to wear the wedding ring, that might be cause for concern. I mean, just think about the guy who says, yeah, I really want to marry you. I I would like for us to be married. But I I don't really want to wear a wedding ring. I mean, I don't think it's that important to publicly identify myself with you. That might not go over well. And it shouldn't, right? And it's also true of baptism. Baptism can't save you. It can't bring you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, why would you not want to joyfully and eagerly and publicly identify yourself with the Lord Jesus? So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I want to encourage you to trust in the Lord Jesus. Be united to Him by faith. Enter into a covenant relationship with Him through faith and then make it official through the waters of baptism. We would be happy to talk to you about how you can do that. If you are here this morning and you are a believer, you've been united to Christ by faith, but you've not been baptized, I would ask you, why not? Now, Oftentimes in our church, especially with some of our younger folks or smaller children, we do encourage them to wait until they're a little bit older so that they have a better understanding of the baptism. And I think that can be appropriate for sure. But on the whole, for most of us, if you've been united with Christ by faith and have not been baptized, why have you not yet taken that step? Here's my admonishment to you this morning. Put a ring on it. You should be eager and willing to identify with Christ publicly. You know, it's, it's interesting because over the years of being a pastor, I have met a number of folks who have said to me, I don't think I can be baptized because I'm so afraid of standing up in front of people. And in one sense, I can understand that fear. But you know, in all the years of being a pastor, I've never encountered anyone who said, I just can't be married because I'm afraid of standing up in front of people. I've never met anyone who is desperately in love with somebody and wants to marry them, but will not go through the marriage ceremony because they just can't stand up in front of everybody. And if you're worried about giving your testimony, you know we do baptism here, the person shares their testimony and then they're baptized, you're worried about speaking in front of people, don't let that hold you back. One of the elders here at the church or a friend or a family member, a spouse can read your testimony to the church and then you can be baptized. We've, we've done that with any number of people. I would encourage you to follow Christ in baptism. And then, if you are a baptized Christian, understand that is primarily who the Apostle Paul is speaking to in these verses. If you've been united to Christ by faith and you're wearing your wedding ring, in other words, you've been baptized, do you understand the significance of that ring? Do you ever look at it and are reminded of its significance and its meaning, your new identity? For a married man or woman, the ring is a reminder of that covenant relationship. And it can also, that ring can serve as protection, right? So if someone is being a little too friendly with you it might be flattering but then you see your ring right and you remind you are reminded of whom you belong to Or maybe someone's being a little too friendly with you and it might be flattering but you flash your ring and you remind them of who you belong to Might be you know just communicating back off I'm taken That's how a wedding ring is supposed to work. And listen, my friends, that's how baptism is supposed to work in our lives. When you remember your baptism, that's what Paul is saying, remember your baptism, remember who you are now in Christ, remember your new identity, remember who you belong to, remember what's happened to you, remember that you've died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ and you are a new person. And when Satan tempts you, seeks to lure you away from your first love, show him your ring, remind him of your baptism. And declare to him that you are a new person in Christ. I've died with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. I am in Christ. I am a new person. I belong to another. Isn't it remarkable that as Paul wrestles with this question and speaks to other Christians about this question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? should we continue to live in sin, that Paul's first instinct is to go back to our baptism. I said in many ways that baptism for the disciple is our first act of obedience to Jesus, and we might say as well, it's our first line of defense against Satan and sin. To remember our baptism. Remember when we placed our faith in Jesus and followed Christ in the waters of baptism, the significance of that moment and what it means for who we are now. As we think about this idea, we next week will press deeper into union with Christ and understand more fully how it is that we can walk by faith and obedience to Jesus as we um, believe and hold deeply these truths. Let's pray. Okay. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of your grace. And Lord, we are reminded afresh this morning that not only have you saved us from the guilt of sin, but Father, by the power of Christ's death and resurrection, you have broken the power of sin in our lives. Lord, help us to walk by faith in that truth. To walk in the new identity that is now ours in Christ. And Lord, we do pray that in the coming weeks as we walk through these verses. That we would experience a deeper communion with Christ. A deeper knowledge of your love for us. A deeper sense of uh, who we are in Jesus. A, a, a greater power in our lives and victory over sin. And confidence in Uh, who we are in Jesus. So Lord, take these words, take these verses, and Lord, we pray that you would uh, just saturate our own minds and hearts with these truths in the weeks to come, and that we would be uh, faithful to you, that we would be sanctified, that we would grow in Christ as you would have us to. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.